On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about kids and screen time. A new study is out that probably very predictably says that kids who get a lot of screen time when they are very young become more likely to have learning problems when they get to school. Are we shocked? Probably not, but we'll explain it. We're also going to chat about airline passengers. There are a lot of people who are complaining, apparently, that airlines are not treating them with a great deal of respect. And this has now become an issue. There are websites. There are people whose jobs involves trying to get people help with the airlines. Is this necessary? Do we need a bill of rights that that is being proposed for the airline industry? We're going to talk about that. Stick around. All coming up on the podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm going to be able to tell how old you are as you're listening to this based on whether or not you can, whether or not this sounds familiar to you. Because for many of you, for some of you, once upon a time, if it was a nice day outside, your mom or your dad or someone would say to you, turn off the idiot box and go outside and play. Anybody? Hands up if that sounds like it's something like you might have heard once upon a time in your life. My hand is up. The idiot box was seen as exactly that. It was something that it was okay, but you don't want to spend too much time in front of it. Get outside and do something useful. Well, let me tell you something. It may have taken a few years, maybe a few decades, but science is now telling us, get ready for this. Your parents were right. (gasps) Yes, your parents were right. Apparently, a new study out of the University of Calgary is saying that excessive screen time, that's TV, that's computers, that's whatever, is connected to learning delays among young students. Dr. Sherry Madigan is is an assistant professor in the psychology department at the University of Calgary uh, with an area of expertise in uh, child development. She is the author of this paper. She joins us now. Dr. Madigan, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me. Is this not now? I don't want to cast any dispersions on your on your research because I it, I'm, it's brilliant. But is this not exactly when you went into this what you would have thought that we would get to that people who spend kids who spend way too much time in front of the screen it's going to have some effect somehow? Yeah, I think it 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 makes sense. You know, because kids who are sitting in front of screens for a long period of time aren't able to spend time practicing really important developmental skills. So we think of them we think of being in front of the screen as a, as those children having a lot of missed opportunities for learning and development. The effect that it has, what okay, so we know what you've just said, that's the end goal, that's the end of it. it it's missed opportunities, but what is the effect? What are we getting when we're sitting or as a kid, as anybody? What are you getting when you're sitting in front of a screen for that long? What is it doing to you? Well, I think um, I think there's a. I think one of the things to come out of this study is that kids are actually in front of the screen a lot. So um, about, uh, on average, two to three hours a day that uh, the kids in our study were in front of screens, and that's kids age two to five. Hmm. So that's actually quite a substantial part of their day, if you think about it. So, you know, they're pretty much up 12 hours a day, and um, if 30% of that time they're spending that in front of screens, you can imagine um, how that might sort of create some delays in development, it, again, because of those missed opportunities. Um, I think technology has also really changed. The digital interface of technology has changed. We, we used to watch screens, um, you know, when we were kids, as you were saying, the idiot box, um, you know, um, there, it, wasn't, it wasn't there, enti- it wasn't digitally engineered to 
um, capture our attention. And now that that it is, right? So now, now it's fully engrossing. You sort of are drawn completely into it. Yeah, I'm sure we've all experienced that. You know, we want to turn it off because we're tired and want to go to bed, but we're so enraptured by what we're seeing right. online, and we go to the next episode and the next episode, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, it's two in the morning. Um, wow, you stop at two? I'm usually about <laughs> four when I get caught in those ones. Breaking Bad nearly killed me. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. But but I think what's happening with kids is they, they don't have the same brain development as we do, and so when they're sitting in front of screens, um, they're very much overstimulated by what they're seeing with this new digital interface, and so there is some concern that that um, it's having an impact in terms of children's brain development, although the research in that area is um, not even um, published yet. So it's a lot of speculation. Even those of us like me who's not a doctor, who's not in the research world, uh, I'm familiar with the concept of dopamine. We all hear about dopamine, and it's it's something that's in your brain as a chemical that when you, it's a pleasure-releasing drug almost. So when something you, you do something and this gets released and it feels great, so you do it again, and we hear that this is what's involved a lot of times with your iPhone or whatever else. Is that where the, is that what we're doing to our kids that we are basically addicting them almost to dopamine? Well, I mean, I can't speak to that because I don't know that research. But there is some, there has been a lot of concern from parents that screens might become addictive, and that's in part because of this digital interface being so alluring to kids. Um, and there's the research that I do know of is really more um, research that has looked at. If, if, you over, if you provide screens, to example, for mice for a very long time, um, they show really uh, they, there's an impact in terms of their cognitive development. So um, th- that's the type of research going on. And there's some new research um, what, that's really uh, what's happening right now is really looking at the brain development through by going in, in an MRI machine and looking at brain, areas of the brain that are sort of being activated. Um, but that research as far as I know, hasn't been published, but it's certainly underway. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Dr. Sherry Madigan, who is from the University of Calgary. Uh, new study out. One in four Canadian children are starting their school years inadequately prepared for learning, according to this new study. Uh, and excessive screen time is being pointed to as a key contributor in this growing problem, which, again, I think most people would probably say, well, yeah. I, 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 this study, I think, is maybe not telling us something we didn't know, but certainly validating what we might have expected. And Sherry, I'm wondering, when you look at this, do we know if what's happening when the kids are spending, as very young kids, are spending this much time in front of the screen, is it rearranging things in their brain, or is it simply changing what they find interesting or stimulating or exciting so that when they actually get to school, it's not nearly as interesting as what they see on a screen? Um, well, that's a possibility. We didn't study the sort of how this happens directly, but um, again, going back to this idea that mi- these are just missed opportunities for kids. So I think it's really that if they're in front of the screens, they're not out, you know, practicing biking or they're not at the park throwing a ball or, you know, practicing their cross motor skills. And they're also not, you know, sitting down, um, coloring, learning how to hold a pen for, or a crayon, for example, which, and you need to do that before you can learn to write your name. You need to, you need to walk before you can walk upstairs or run. So I think what it is is that we just have become very reliant on the screens to keep kids busy, which, which is understandable in some ways because we leave, we all lead quite a hectic life. But I think what it's, what it's, 
we're using it too often is what's happening. And kids are often being put in front of the screens more as a babysitting approach rather than any type of interactive approach. And the irony of that, I suppose, is there are apps or there are programs you can do in your computer, on your iPad, whatever, for coloring, for doing these very things. So instead of giving them a crayon, we'll say do this app, which is kind of the same thing, but again, it's a screen. Yeah, exactly. So kids really are going to school and they're not able to really write at that point because they haven't really had a lot of practice with crayons or, you know, with printing their name. I mean, I mean, can you remember the last time you picked up a pen and wrote a note? You know, it doesn't happen very often anymore. And so we've sort of lost the practice of doing that with our kids of, you know, um, getting them to sit down and, and color and, uh, and learn how to write. But the challenge... I guess, or I think, is that not only are our lives built around screens, but schools are now creating curricula that involve screens. Here in Hamilton, we have an iPad program where students in certain grades are being given an iPad to use. So we're even as part. So when you go to the school now, we're giving you a screen to keep you on your screen. (laughs) Well, I think that you know, I I do think screens can be used for good. Um, I think that. There are a lot of positive benefits of screens. There's, there's some research to show that when children watch um, high-quality programming like Sesame Street, um, it helps with their language development, for example. Um, it's, it's when kids are watching, you know, streaming video for long periods of time that, that we find it uh, problematic. But I think that screens can be used for good. I know in our family, we do a Friday night movie night where we all watch um, a movie together, and it's a really enjoyable experience, you know, and we really like it. Um, that said, we don't do that every night, and we try and find other nights where we have game nights or other nights we're just doing homework with our kids. So um, I think it's about just like, you know, you think about junk food, you eat it in moderation. We really need to think about screen time in a similar way where we, we really use it in moderation. I won't tell you how much junk food I eat. <laughs> um, now, y- your experience is in, and your expertise is in child development. Is there any reason, though, to think that if a child is having this impact on their preparation for learning and what it's doing to their ability to learn, if that's affecting a child, is there any reason to believe the same wouldn't be the case for adults and teenagers and others who are spending this much time in front of a screen? Well, I think like most things in life, you know, too much, uh, you know, too much of something that's not recommended is is never good for you. So junk food uh, and adults, too much wine or alcohol, it's it's the same principle. So I think that um, as parents, we have a sort of added task in that we are trying to model for our children how to have healthy device habits. So, uh, you know, I certainly take that responsibility on as a parent that, you know, when I come home at the end of the day, I try and put the phone away, my phone away, no no work-related emails. Um, I turn off my ringer and my text alerts so that I can really focus on connecting with family. And I think that's what's gotten a little bit lost with the ease and accessibility of devices is that they are constantly interrupting mm-hmm. our time for connection with family. So I think as, as parents and as adults, we can really think about how we want to model healthy device habits because, you know, these kids are watching and learning from us and um, we're certainly setting up a precedent for how as a family we want to use media in the home so I, I think I think that's where um, you know adults really need to think about about uh, about their connection with their devices and I often say that we need to disconnect from devices and connect with family because those are the interactions that really matter. We only have a few seconds left, but I got to think this also really ups the challenge for teachers when kids come into the school, especially young kids, 
and you're now expected to keep their attention and teach them, and this is what they've been used to. Yeah, and we do hear a lot from, from kindergarten teachers saying, like, kids are really coming to school, and they don't, they don't know how to write their name, they don't know how to use a crayon, they're actually, they know how to use an iPad, and so they have sort of a digital literacy, but they don't actually have um, literacy in terms of knowing language or being able to use their hands to, you know, to really write something with a, with a, with a pencil. Dr. Sherry Madigan, you can read, the, there's her, the report is online, there's r- stories about the report for more details. Uh, Dr. Sherry Madigan from the University of Calgary. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A while back, I was flying home with my family uh, on a flight for which we had paid extra to reserve our seats. You know how you do that now? I mean, they, they try and cut costs. You buy your ticket. And then if you want to actually sit with someone or sit in a certain spot, you pay an additional fee. Well, when I got to the airport, Something apparently had happened, and when we got our tickets, we were no longer sitting together. We weren't sitting in the seats for which we had paid. We were scattered around the plane, and when I went up to the guy and I said, these are not the seats that we had paid for, he said, well, I'm sorry that they are no longer available. I don't know why. And it made me think of that old Seinfeld episode. You know how to take the reservation. You don't know how to hold the reservation. Anyway, we got on the flight. I made it home. Didn't make much of a fuss. But when I got home, I tried to figure out how to start getting a refund for that extra amount of money that had been paid per ticket. We got home, but they had not given us what we'd paid for. We'd reserved seats and I thought we're going to get a refund for this. Well, eventually, long story short, eventually we got a refund partially. I don't really know why. I don't know how they figured the amount. We got a partial refund rather than the full amount to my shame I'm busy. I just finally gave up. Couldn't be bothered fighting it anymore. Didn't have enough time to fight for a few bucks. And so why do I mention this? Well, because I get the sense that that's far from the only time this has happened. Story I was reading today about a man who gave up his seat on an overbooked Air Canada flight on the promise of an $800 voucher. If you don't fly, the flight was overbooked. We'll give you 800 bucks towards a new flight. He says, okay, you take my seat. Later he finds out, no, it's not $800. It's a 15% discount on his next flight. Uh, He's a lawyer and he fought and he fought and he fought and he finally got it, but I think he's a rarity. All that leads me to my guest, Gabor Lukic, who is the founder of Air Passenger Rights. He joins me now. Gabor, thanks for doing this today. Good evening. Uh, Is this, do you think this is common? Do you think this happens more than we think that people are finishing their flight experience and thinking that they've not got exactly what they thought they were? Unfortunately, we see it happen quite often. We see it happen that people are promised one thing at the gate when they're waived their seat or when they are being told that their flight is cancelled. They're promised a meal vouchers, hotels, or compensation. And then when they actually want to get the money, they're being told, no, we don't pay you anything. And do you believe that this is an intentional strategy because, you know, we're going to make you fight for what you want and eventually most people like me are just going to give up? Or do you think this is just, you know, these are massive companies and it's difficult to sort out all the different nuances of who gets what? Uh, I think it's both in in some ways. Um, Clearly, there is a question of record keeping, although in this case, in the case of this passenger from Vancouver um, to Toronto, he knew and saw the the compensation being entered into the computer. So this was not a question of the agent forgetting to record it, rather Air Canada refusing to respect and honor what has been entered. 
But in many cases, it is the agent just wants to assure the passenger, oh, you will be okay, and doesn't enter anything into the computer. So overall, it is a, it is a company that puts up with it. If you were experiencing this kind of situation in the bank where one bank employee tells you one thing and then the other bank employee doesn't respect it, then the bank manager or the bank uh, hire directors, they would step in or they would should be stepping in because uh, it would harm the bank in terms of their reputation. In the case of airlines, however, uh, it seems very much that we are still the Wild West. Why is that, though? Because it seems as though the airlines are still, I think, I, I mean, are they a, a service industry, part of the service industry? It seems they are. I mean, you would want people to finish your experience and say, you know what? That was great. If I have to fly again, I'm going to go with that airline because they treated me magnificently. That doesn't seem to be happening. And nominally, they are part of the service industry, but in practice, we don't have enough competition in Canada. You have Air Canada and WestJet. For, for domestic flights. You have some startup swoop, which is really WestJet in disguise. Uh, Air Canada Rouge, Air Canada in disguise. You have Flair, which is still small and swoop is trying to kill it. So in reality, how much choice do you have? You don't really have a choice. It's not as if uh, those airlines would face really serious consequences when they disobey the law. Part of the problem is that the federal watchdog, the Canadian Transportation Agency, He's not doing his job. It is in bed with the airlines. Well, and, and this I mean in bed literally. No, no, and this one, guy. One of their, sorry, this guy did something very way. kind, right? I mean, this guy did something kind. He saw a family that was crying and that wanted to travel together, and so he did something. But this this kind of thing, when people read this story, this has to discourage. They want you to help them out sometimes. This kind of thing, when it goes public, has to discourage anybody from saying, "Yeah, I'll give up my seat next time." Indeed, the, the, um, the, this um, business professor did something very, very kind, and uh, it is very, very unfortunate that uh, the uh, airline has turned into something so ugly. He was trying to be nice to the family. And after this experience, I do advise everyone to think twice before they agree to this, not because you don't want to be kind, but at what cost. It is one thing to be kind and be compensated for your hassle. It's an entirely different level of sacrifice not many people want to do, but you know that you are actually not only going to give up your seat, but then you will even be treated poorly by the airline. Yeah, you would. You almost now have to have a, a, a legal document at the gate to say you're going to get what you need, what they say you're going to get. In, in this case, Air Canada admitted that that's what he was promised. So it was not a question of proof, although often that becomes the problem. It was a question that they say, well, he promised it, but now we're not going to do it. And that doesn't fly unless we live in Canada where the government watchdog, the Canadian Transportation Agency, is cozy with the airlines. We're in, we are in a country, which you need to understand, is that where the people who actually decide disputes between passengers and airlines, one of them is married to a lawyer for the International uh, Air Transport Association, which has Air Canada as its members. So it is way more cozy than you would think. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Gabor Lukacs, who is with Air Passenger Rights. It is a website that talk, that deals with people who are dealing with stuff with air travel. Um, Gabor, th- this may be a dumb question because I know what your website is, but how often do you hear complaints from people about air travel? We receive a lot of emails and even more posts in our Facebook group. We have a Facebook group of nearly 10,000 people. 
And so, uh, and again, I understand that probably not too many people are getting in touch with you if they've been delighted, <laughs> delighted with their trip because you're, you're helping them in a lot of ways deal with difficult things. But does that surprise you how many people are, are reaching out? It doesn't surprise me given how shady the airline industry is and how shabby the corporate conduct tends to be. Is this a modern thing though? Like, are we complaining about things that 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago we wouldn't complain about, but we're just entitled now in our modern era, and so any little thing that goes wrong, I'm going to complain about it? I don't think so. Uh, The majority of the complaints that I see are of the nature that 20, 25 years ago was unthinkable for an airline to do, and certainly not to do and just shrug and not compensate a passenger. Uh, what has changed in part is that more people fly and uh, airlines are trying to cut more corners. 20 or 25 years ago, flying was really a pleasure, a leisure to a greater extent than it is now. Now it is more like getting on a bus in terms of how the airlines want people to view it. And as a result, the uh, service reflects it, unfortunately, or the lack of service more precisely. Well, and I have to think that also uh, part of this is happening more and more because there are more th- fees on airlines, more things that you are paying extra for and more fees, more bonuses means more things that could go wrong, I guess. And more things going wrong means more refunds and more refunds. Airlines don't, obviously, nobody, nobody wants to give refunds. They want to try and figure it out. So it seems like they've set it up where there's more that could go wrong. Um, But I think part of the problem is that airlines are trying now to make profit from not paying compensation to passengers when compensation is owed. All right. And so that means that it's going, it's going to be made difficult to try and get that money back if something is owed? Airlines are making it more and more difficult for passengers, more and more litigious. And the idea is that if you don't like it, take us to court. And how many people will have this time to take us to court? Very few. Well, the government has proposed a bill of rights for passengers. Uh, This is supposed to be the magical elixir where you can, I don't know if it's go on a website or do whatever, but it's going to... I guess what put a put a, a list of rules and regulations and restrictions and guidelines in place, and this is going to be you can expect this when you fly. Is it going to work? Is that going to fix things? The proposed government uh, regulations uh, with respect to air travel undermine the rights of Canadian travelers. It claws back on existing rights. For example, it more than doubles the time airlines can keep you on the tarmac from the current Canadian standard of 90 minutes to more than three hours. So why, why then? Well, we have been asking this question for the past nearly two years. The Senate did not agree with the government's proposed rules. When this matter came before the Senate, the Senate sent back Bill C-49 to the House of Commons and told House of Commons, we think that 90 minutes on the tarmac should be the maximum but the government listened to the airline lobby and not to the public and the Senate and just rammed the bill through Parliament. And that is what we see now reflected in the proposed regulations. So it makes no sense. So by this Bill of Rights, uh, Gabor, by this Bill of Rights, let's say that uh, it's now three hours, as you say. Let's say you're on the tarmac for three hours and ten minutes. What happens? Nothing, because we also have a government watchdog, the Canadian Transportation Agency, which is unfortunately in bed with the airlines. 
uh, when uh, there was an incident in Ottawa in summer 2017, when passengers were kept on the tarmac for five and six hours, and the rules said 90 minutes, all the airline got is a slip and slap on the wrist. They were issued a fine, and the fine was waived on the same day that it was issued. It, 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 if that's the case, it seems like a bill of rights seems like a bit of a waste of time. This is smoke and mirrors. In terms of what is in the regulations, the airline industry was consulted by the maker of the regulations, the Canadian Transportation Agency, while Bill C-49 was still in infancy before the House of Commons, before even second reading. The public consultation that took place last year was just a uh, dog and pony show. It is, uh, it is head-scratching. Uh, Gabor Lucek, who, uh, from uh, Air Passenger Rights. You can find that website online if you want to check it out. I really appreciate you taking some time today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Sir, how are you tonight? You know, I'm in a mysterious kind of mood. There, mysterious. Scott. Yeah, I'm myst- I mean, I feel like I'm in a mystery here. You know, I, I, you know, obviously, maybe not all of our listeners know about Adnan Verk, who is, you know, a, a Canadian broadcaster that worked for ESPN and has been dismissed from his job for um, what they're saying is leaking company confidential company information. And I'm just trying to wonder, like, what what could that be? Well, so the story, okay, so for people who don't know, people will remember Adnan Verk. He was on, was it Sportsnet or TSN he, he was, was on? TSN. He was at TSN. He TSN, was on. TSN and the score at the time. Okay. And then he went down, and it, you may remember him from, he did a lot of Sunday night baseball games of the week yep. with A-Rod and those guys. He was on there. You would, people would definitely know him to see him. And yes, this story broke Sunday or Monday, I think Sunday, that he had been fired by ESPN, and the story was that detail that he had given up private company information and they didn't suspend him or anything. They fired him. The story I heard, I don't know if it's true, is that it was negotiations that ESPN was having with Major League Baseball about trying to re-sign a deal and it was contract negotiations. Now, the problem with that is how would Adnan Verk know what ESPN's negotiations to get a rights deal with Major League Baseball would be? This is where I'm, I'm, I'm stumped. I mean, and... If he knew, how much did he know? And, I, I, I mean, from what I'm reading, too, there's a, a website called Awful Announcing that uh, he's reportedly spoken to about... Uh, yeah, that's who he apparently leaked all this information leaked to. Leaked all this information, and I, I, I just thinking of myself, well, I mean, ESPN, I mean, as much as we think Sportsnet and, and TSN are a giant, ESPN is a massive, massive company that is run by Disney, that uh, what could he have possibly known in terms of the interior designs of this new upcoming deal that he would have spread that was so sensitive that could get him fired, suspended maybe, but fired? It's a, he, and as you said at the top, he is, he was, he is. I mean, he'll he'll land somewhere. He he is one of the rising st- Canadian stars of sports television, of sports broadcasting. He's probably what forty years old, maybe. I mean, I, I mean, he was a huge. They had big plans for this guy. I mean, he was already host their top college football show um you know and it's a visible minority i believe he's pakistani canadian like i mean just he just no no offense but he fit the bill wonderfully he's incredibly entertaining incredibly knowledgeable and does a great job at his job and to just see a guy lose your job like that is just 
unbelievable. I expect, I, I mean, as I say, I don't know what the details, I expect that we will find out more. I don't think you can let a guy go like this if you're ESPN and nothing is ever going to come out in any kind of detail. I just, I don't, I don't, the, the irony would be it's supposed to be a personnel matter. So anyone who leaked out the details presumably should also be fired, <laughs> but we'll see. Well, it'll just be a cycle of people releasing and leaking stuff and being fired. We'll never, it'll never end. It'll just be an ongoing series of things. On an opposite note, the anti-firing, Toronto Maple Leafs throw 53, 58, 50 something million dollars at Austin Matthews to stick around. Nobody is surprised by this, right? This was th- th- There had been some thought that, oh, maybe this is the guy who wants to do what John Tavares did by coming home and maybe he'll want to go to Arizona. That was never going to happen, right? Not now, anyway. No, I, no Scott, I think, this, I think what the big surprise for a lot of people, and especially people in the industry, um, I, I'm not going to say a big surprise, but it's an eye-awakening situation that the tides are changing in the National Hockey League where contracts, which were pretty much dominated by what the owner projected, has changed. The players are getting much more control of what their futures are. A play, owners would love to have locked, I mean, I believe sports and entertainment, would have loved to lock down Austin Matthews to what he's getting right now, you know, a little over $11 million dollars. Um, which would be second highest in the National Hockey League based on an average annual salary. But they would have liked to get that deal on something with a whole lot of length to it. So basically, you give him a lot of money up front, and then it just whittles down. And as he gets a little bit older, which, I mean, he's only 21 now, but they would have liked probably an eight-year, nine-year deal at, you know, the going rate of today. But what the players are doing right now are getting much shorter-term contracts at a higher average value. And they're getting it before their final year of their contract. There was a time in the NHL where guys really didn't, weren't, you know, they negotiated these deals when they became, you know, unrestricted free agents. Now players are saying, look, if we don't get a deal done before my restricted free agent deal, which is two years before the deal is actually done, I'm going to test the market, which, you know, if you're looking for play, player security, there's just not a lot of it because then most of the times the players are going to the highest bidders. So you're seeing a shift in now in what the players are, are, are having the, in terms of control of what their salaries are and the length of the, the contract. Well, so, this makes it difficult for all, it makes it difficult for a lot of ways. I mean, the, what really is interesting about this is, first of all, you're right, it's a shorter deal. So he's going to be 26 years old. Presumably, if he stays healthy and if he stays on his current track, he will be in the absolute prime of his career when he becomes an unrestricted free agent next time, which means this is a huge payday. I mean, look, we understand in the real world that $11.5 million a year is a unfathomable amount of money. Well, he will get probably as the salary cap goes up and everything else, he'll be looking at 14 or 15 over five or six or seven years next time. So he is... He's got that, but the the thing that's so interesting about this, Bubba, is I look at this and you realize that now Marner is going to get something similar, you would think, very soon, and some other players, because you've got Line in Winnipeg who's going to want something like this and on and on. You are really in the NHL now that all this money is going to young stars. You are squeezing the middle class right out of the game. 
you are going to have four, three or four or maybe five big ticket players on most teams in yep. short order. Yep. And to get everything else under the salary cap, you may have a couple in the middle, but you're going to have to have a lot of guys at the beginning. You are going to be seeing, I think, in the NHL very soon, like you're seeing in some other sports, the stars and the everybody else and not much in between. Well, and that's the only way you could fit it. I mean, as it's projected for next year, the salary cap right now is listed for next season at $83 million. And as it stands right now, when Matthew's new deal kicks in, he's already taking up 7.5% of that. And you have 23 players to to pay under contract. And you're totally correct in saying that the middleman is going to be squeezed out. And now it is going to get very much like basketball and that the fact that your starting players are going to make significant money. The difference with the NBA and the NHL is you can afford to do that with the NBA because, one, the salary cap is not a hard cap like the NHL. And more importantly, you're only paying 12 players, 13 players. Whereas in the National Hockey League, you're, you have to stretch that a shorter a shorter salary cap figure under 23 players. And with players making a big percentage of that, I mean, again, you, as you talked about, uh, Buddy's making 11.3. Mitch Marner is going to, I mean, he has already said he's not negotiating during the season. Um, it was thought just a year ago that he would probably get something in the six to six and a half range. But based on the fact that he's the leading scorer this year and has certainly blossomed, they're now talking about him being in double digits. So you put him, you put Nylander at $6.9 million, and that's a tremendous amount of money taken away from that $83 million. So your, your scouting of younger players and your farm team better be pretty good to have the next level third and fourth line guys because you're going to need to call those guys up. Well, no one's going to be crying for guys making $2 million a year in the real world. Nobody's going to be crying for those guys, but there's going to be a lot of players that once upon a time, it would have worked that you come in and you make the minimum wage and you slowly work your way up. And by the time you get to be 33, 34, you're making a pretty good amount of money relative to hockey numbers. And then you can retire. Now you better be a star or else you're going to be if you want to stick around in the NHL, you're going to have to accept a lot lower money. I absolutely believe this. This is going to really separate the two extremes. Yeah, well, I think that's just that's just the, the market demand, though, Scott, and I think that's just the way that sport is going right now. And what you're going to see, too, is because the need of, of, of improving your team quicker than ever. There was a time where, you know, in sports, and, and hockey's no different, where fans were patient with a five-year rebuild. You don't want that. Just can't happen anymore. You need to turn. If your team is poor, you need to turn around. And we talked about this last week with the Blue Jays. Your your turnaround team to have to be competitive. I'll use the word. It, it, it's got to be two to three years now. And if you don't, then you can do in hockey what's called an offer sheet, as you can start to pick talent from other teams who are you know, other players that are in that restricted free agent zone and offer them big money, which teams that own the, the player are going, to ha- are going to be forced to decide, do we pay this guy match and uh, give him a little bit more, or do we let this talent go to another team because they have now you know, offered, sent in an offer sheet on, on a particular player. So your turnaround team to be competitive has got to be much quicker than it was And the, the great difficulty in the NHL with that is that in the NBA, you have five players on the floor at a time, and your stars can play 
the vast majority of the game. You can have LeBron James on the court for 43, 44 of a 48-minute game. So Absolutely. he can... You can't have Austin Matthews on the ice for 55 minutes of a game. Nope. And so in the NBA, you can have two or three superstar players that you pay all your money to, and you can still have a great team. That's not something you can do in the NHL. It makes it very, very, very difficult to figure that out. Speaking of the NBA, I want to move over there for a second. Sports Illustrated reported today, I don't know if you saw this, that the Toronto Raptors... Yep offered a package of Kyle Lowry and Jonas Valanciunas to the Memphis Grizzlies for point guard Mike Conley and forward Mark Gasol. This, there's a bunch of reasons why this may have been something they considered, but this goes with the whole idea of the Raptors maybe making a pitch for Anthony Davis, who's the big guy out there in the trade world right now and all the rest. If the Toronto Raptors really went for it, if they really decided to push all their chips to the middle of the table and said, we're going for it, we are going to come hell or high water, this is the year. And next year, they went back to ground zero, went back to the studs basically because Davis wanted out and because Ka- Kawhi Leonard was leaving and if this all happens and, and Lowry is gone. Is, is this area, ha- has it matured as a basketball market enough that if the Toronto Raptors go back to being a 20-win team, that people are still going to be paying attention and be okay with that as it rebuilds? Well, I can. I, the Raptors will never be a 20-win team again, not with Messiah Jerry as, as a GM now. Because what was crafty about this deal, Scott, is is with the you know let's let's just assume that Kawhi Leonard is 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 one and done. The players that they are actually looking at, like an Anthony Davis, are all players that have more extended years on their contract. Davis has one more. Gasol and Connolly would have more as well too. So if these if if said Kawhi walks, your team is still competitive. Bradley Beal was another person that they're apparently looking at. So you're protected by having these still, you know, these these veteran-like, you know, all-star caliber players to go along with the players that actually exist right now. Um, The deal with Memphis today that they, I mean, they were the ones that approached Memphis with this deal makes a little sense to me. Gasol is a much better scorer than Valanciunas is, much older, that's your trade-off. And he's much uh, generally have been a much healthier player than Valanciunas. And much more expensive, uh, and, for now. And, uh, yeah, and, yeah, and for now, a little bit more expensive. And, and Connolly has been one of these um, uh, unspoken of point guards that many people around the league say, this guy is, like, no one talks about him because he plays in Memphis on how good he is. And we've already seen that Kyle Lowry's back is becoming a big issue. Um, you know, he's already missed multiple games. He was supposed to not miss play tonight, though so he's going to play tonight. Missed Sunday's game. Um, they're already into this, quote, load management issue with him and his, this chronic issue. They love that said. phrase. They, they love that phrase, they, load, they, the load management. management. I, I mean, it's sports science gone to the max. I don't know. I'd never heard that either before. I, I want, knowing that Ka- Kawhi Leonard has missed something like 25% of the Raptors games and is being paid, and he's made something like $6 million this year for games that he has missed, I want to be on the load management program at the SPEC and CHML. <laughs> I want them to say, just, you know what, Scott? Stay home, rest, watch Netflix, 25%. So two days every week, just chill because we want you to pace yourself. That load management, that is my dream. The funny thing is, is for, and I, I've done a lot of digging on this too, 
from people that I know in this industry and and people that I know in the in in the Raptors. This is not a this is not of Kawhi's doing. This is the Raptors doing this. They are doing everything for him to quote be as fresh as a daisy when the playoffs come because he's going to be playing heavy minutes and playing every second night with the thought that this team is going to play at least get to the Eastern Conference Championship. But this isn't Kawhi saying, you know, I'll take a seat or whatever the case is. He is being convinced by the Raptors that this is the smart thing to do to give his body time to recover. I mean, we already saw two weeks ago where he missed three, maybe... I guess, four. Four games four, in a row. Is it four consecutive games? Yep. I thought it was three, but four consecutive games... Um, just to rest his body and and rest his legs. So, um, I haven't done that since high school when I <laughs> pretended to have the sniffles, so I could stay home for four um, straight days. No, this is again why you know but, get into sports if you can. But do you think? And and I mean, okay, I, I take your point about Masai Ujiri and this team is not going to be that. But if this team goes back to being not a contender, a rebuild of some sort, is is it a mature enough basketball market now that people will be okay with that? Yeah, I think so, Scott. And I think there's a love affair with this team. I think there's a love affair with the fact that this team is. There's a lot of people out there that are real happy that the the, the Raptors are quote going for it this year, because obviously LeBron not being in the in the conference anymore. That this would this is this is a window of opportunity. And in sports, as we see, not just the NBA, there there are times where your window of opportunity to win a championship is very small, and at times you have to go for it. Uh, interesting statistic, if you didn't know this too, over the last eleven years. The Raptors have the best record over 11 years of over every team in the NBA. Really? So, which which is interesting to me, and this which shows actually when you and you go if you go and look back, the consistency that they have had. Yes, the consistent thing is they keep getting knocked out of the playoffs by LeBron James, but overall in terms of a regular season and being competitive, 11 straight seasons better than any other team in the NBA. Says a little bit that they've done a good job in building this thing. They just need to get over the top. All right, let me throw one more crazy idea at you. Trade deadline is Thursday for the NBA. Let us say, and we don't know that this is the case because we have no idea what the discussion is right now with uh, Kawhi Leonard and Masai Ujiri and with the Raptors, and we know that they want him to stay, and we don't know what he said. But let us say that they go to him this week and they say, Kawhi, listen. We got to know. We got to, you know, we'll sort out the details later. We can do a super max deal, all that kind of stuff. But if he were to say to them, I'm not signing after this year, and you could get the deal that the Lakers offered for Anthony Davis. Whoa, that was huge. Where the Lakers basically are giving you everybody but LeBron, almost, with a bunch of first round draft picks and some good players and everything else. At this point in the season, if you're the Raptors, would you trade Kawhi Leonard in order to get something back for him instead of him walking away? It it is so juicy. But the Raptors are not in the same position that the Pelicans are. They're looking to build their franchise right now because they're a team that have not made the... In the time that Davis has been there, they've made the playoffs twice and get eliminated, I believe, in the first round both, both times. The Raptors are, you know, one of the NBA elite teams, so I can't make that deal, Scott. There's a reason why they're doing what they're doing. They're, they, they're all in. They, they're pot committed. Like, they, you know... 
So to go back and, and say, yeah, you well, do you still have a good team with those guys that you just talked about? You know, Lonzo Ball and Kuzma and all these guys from the Lakers. That would still make the Raptors an extremely competitive team and young and exciting next year. But you're talking about arguably one of the top three and definitely one of the top five players in the NBA and Kawhi Leonard for offensive and defensive purposes. You would ruin exactly what your plan was at the beginning of the I year. Agree. I agree. I agree. However, there is one caveat to that, and I, I agree with you. I wouldn't do it now because you've, you've basically said this is our season, this is our chance, this is our open door. The, ex, the, ex, the one exception to that would be that Anthony Davis, and if for people listening, if they don't know who Anthony Davis is, he is one of the super elite players in the league. He wants to play in Los Angeles, but he gave, apparently, he plays for um, the Pelicans right now, for the uh, New Orleans Pelicans, which is still the stupidest name in sports. But um, he gave a list, apparently, of teams that he would consider going to. One of them is Milwaukee, is the Milwaukee Bucks. If somehow, before the trade deadline, the Milwaukee Bucks acquired Anthony Davis... If I'm the Toronto Raptors at that point, I bail and I say, let me get something for Kawhi Leonard if he's not signing with us because you're not beating the Milwaukee Bucks with the Greek freak and with Anthony Davis. I don't care who you have. You're not beating them then. Yeah, I mean, there's you know they've beaten them one out of four times this season already. And if yeah, if you're right, you added uh, Anthony Davis to Giannis Antetokounmpo, that that would be a, just an absolute problem. But we have seen in the past where you put together unbelievable teams with unbelievable talent. I know. And, the t- and for whatever reason, we've seen this in various sports, and it just doesn't work. The chemistry isn't there. I, again, I, I, believe, I see what you're saying in prepping for next year, but I think the, 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 the deed has already been done for the Raptors. They're already all in, and you know at the, at, at the very least, the only thing at this point I could see them doing is maybe adding a three-point shooter because their three-point shooter needs to be improved. Or you just go all in again with something else just to continue to supermax your team and support Kawhi. Uh, you know, and especially thinking that you know, Lowry's minutes may need to be a little reduced from what uh, you know, he's experiencing based on the, the back issues. So, well, yeah. listen, I, I, if, I don't think Milwaukee's going to do that. But before I let you go, here is your skill testing question for the day. You're a TV guy. You only have to say things. You don't usually have to spell things. Oh, no. Can you spell Giannis Atentacumpo's last name? This should, this should be our quiz question one time, except people are, people's brains would break. Giannis, <laughs> why are you making me do this? Um, okay, so I know it, 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 I know to spell his first name is easy, so that's G-I-A-N-N-I-S. Correct, Giannis, okay. yes. Uh, Already tricky, but you got that one correct. Okay, so Antetokounmpo. Anti, so it's anti, Antetokounmpo, so A-N-T-E, Antetokounmpo, uh, so... T O K O Umpo. So Umpo is O U N M P O. Bubba O'Neill with the quiz question du jour nails it. Look at you, more than just a pretty face, more than just a talking head. <laughs> Future contestant in the script spelling bee. <laughs> Maybe a few years older than the allowable limit to. Stand there beside those kids and just glare at them and scare them. But wow, wow, 
Look at you. I yeah. am so impressed. Yeah, that's how, because I'll be honest with you. I had to, I mean, if you're in this business and you say that name as much as I have to, you have to know the name. So you just, it's, it's one of those things you have to just break it down into five different names. Even just to say it, Giannis Atentacupo. <laughs> that's a tough one. Someone's going to turn and, that into and, a song one day. like Greek mythology, too. It's a, he's, a, he's a great player, and he's a great name, and you may be the only person in this city who could have done that. Well done. Uh, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can see him tonight on CHCH doing the sports, doing the weather. Who knows what else he may spell? You never know what you might find when you watch Bubba. Thanks for doing this. Freezing rain warning, folks. Yes, freezing rain. And that is spelled, well, you can spell that however you want on the cry on tomorrow. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.